This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Two guests this week. First up, Noah Eagle. He called Nickelodeon's first ever NFL broadcast and is also the radio voice of the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, And we get into the Nickelodeon broadcast and what it was like to be part of that, how he prepared, and then uh, some Clippers talk, including how he got uh, the job. And Noah's very honest uh, as well about um, being the son of Iron Eagle and what that means and having people be critical of you uh, thinking that you're getting jobs because of your last name. He's followed by Ryan S. Clark, my colleague at The Athletic. He uh, covers uh, the NHL nationally as well as the Seattle Kraken for The Athletic. Uh, That's going to be an awesome beat because Seattle's going to be an amazing hockey city. Um, And in addition to Ryan uh, talking about the biggest stories of the year in the NHL and uh, how COVID has sort of impacted coverage for him both nationally and locally, Ryan, uh, Ryan talks about the diversity in NHL and how many people of color are covering the sport. Those numbers are not very good. Ryan talks about gender as well. Uh, Ryan told me on the podcast that he believes he is, at the moment, the only um, the only uh, national writer covering the NHL who's black. I mean, just think about that. Um, that's just crazy to think about, but the reality as well. So, um, so Ryan gets into, um, some very interesting places and I appreciate when it comes to diversity in hockey media. So first up, Noah Eagle followed by Ryan S. Clark on the sports media podcast. All right. As I said at the top, uh, Noah Eagle, his main job is as the radio voice of the Los Angeles Clippers, but uh, he's on this podcast because he was the play-by-play announcer for Nickelodeon's NFL broadcast, which was both a critical as well as a viewership success. Uh, 2.1 million viewers watched that Nickelodeon broadcast alone. That's the most viewed program uh, or most viewed Nickelodeon program in four years. Um, As I wrote for The Athletic, you are going to see another one of these for sure. And my guess would be that other networks are going to try to duplicate it. And I'm happy to be joined by Noah Eagle, who I assume is back somewhere in uh, the Los Angeles area enjoying the sun. Noah, how are you? Richard, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, I'm, I'm back in the sunshine and in the crevices of Los Angeles. So uh, good to be back. Good to be back in the, in the weird time difference from everyone else. But I uh, appreciate you having me on. You got it. All right, so first off, let me ask you a very um, open-ended question. How did you think the broadcast went? How did it go for you? I thought it was great. I thought going in, we, we all knew that it had a chance to be uh, something special. Uh, I don't know if we expected it to have the reception that it did, but given all of the parts and all of the pieces that were included, especially behind the scenes, especially with the crew, uh, just the crew that they put together and the work that they had put in, Ken Mack, the producer, who uh, 
fantastic work during the NFL season on CBS. Suzanne Smith, the director who I know you've talked to and directed my father's first NFL game, directed my first NFL game, an absolute legend in the business. And she does fantastic work. Uh, Sean Robbins putting this thing together for months upon end and weeks of just diligent preparation and copious notes and you name it. He just, he did everything possible to make sure that we were in a good position. And Ross Malloy and down the list, I mean, even Danny Koppelnick, our project manager, like everybody who was involved put maximum effort in. So when you see that going into it, and I think myself, Nate Burleson, and the two kids from Nickelodeon, Gabby Nevea Green and, and Lex Lumpkin, we all saw that, especially in the week leading up as they were really ramping it up. And so we knew how much it meant to them. We knew how much it meant to us to go out there and just have fun. And that was the goal, when we, when we, especially when we got to the Superdome. I think Nate and I kind of made eye contact right before the game and just said, all right, let's just have fun, and hopefully people will do the same thing. And I think we got lucky that people seemed to do exactly that. It hit some sort of nostalgic nerve with people, and so we used that and, and we moved forward. But it was just having, having fun, having a conversation about football and keeping it light throughout the entirety of the game, which, uh, which was the goal. As specific as you can, what was different for you for this broadcast versus a regular broadcast, understanding that you had never called the NFL before? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is the target audience. You know, when you're when you're doing any of these sports, whether it be with the Clippers, whether it be stuff I've done tennis wise or uh, obviously now in the NFL, usually the, the concern and the listener or the viewer that you're trying to hit are fans, are fans who are involved in that sport, fans who know the, the intricacies of teams, the intricacies of players and sports and the lingo, but that's not the case with this broadcast. We were catering this for a brand new audience. We're catering it for potentially new fans moving forward. And so you have to keep that in mind while also understanding that with this being the first time this is happening, you are going to get those fans of maybe 15, 20 years that are interested and want to just tune in to, to pique their curiosity and you have to include them. You have to include all of them. So that, that was the biggest challenge, I would say, and the biggest difference of a normal broadcast is making sure you're catering to all of those people and most specifically the ones who are new. And so that was really what Nate and myself were tasked with from the football side of things was how can we explain it in, in a way that's not condescending, in a way that includes both parties and I think we just figured it out as the game went on. We, we had a, a general idea after doing a practice game, a rehearsal game, did about a quarter and a half. Uh, but it was different because that's, that's on the computer, it's online, it's a little bit of a delay. You can't pick up on each other's cues. So we, we basically said, okay, you know, this was, this was good to at least get ourselves familiar with each other's styles but when we're in person, we think it's going to be a little easier to, to look at each other and to pick up on uh, smaller things of the game. And that's, that's basically what happened. Once we got there, we got into more of a rhythm and definitely were more familiar with not just each other, but with, with Gabby and Lex as well. And that helped a lot. And the game, honestly, not being a, a tightly contested back-and-forth playoff game probably helped us as well in the sense that we could do our fun stuff. 
and people wanted the fun stuff because it took away from the fact that New Orleans was running away with it. Uh, so that, that did help us as well, and we were glad that people just seemed to connect with some of the lighter uh, approaches that we took. From your perspective, Noah, um, how was it to interact with like the sort of the graphic elements of Nickelodeon, which the sort of the Nickified part of the broadcast, the slime, the cannons, et cetera, as the person calling this, uh, what was it like for you when the production people were interacting with you, telling you that this was coming? Oh yeah. I mean, we were, we were cracking up watching all the stuff ahead of time. They showed us all the graphics they had prepared. And the crazy part, I talked about the crew earlier. And, and the reason I did is because I know how much work that they put in beforehand. There were so many other elements that didn't make air. And that's, that's normal. That's normally the case. It's no different than preparing for the game from the broadcasting side of things. And you use maybe 25 to 30% of the work that you put in ahead of time. That's what you want. You want to be over-prepared for a, a broadcast, especially like this one. But the, there were so many other elements that they had that I was excited for them to get in. And they basically have to save for maybe the next time they do it, as long as that does end up coming to fruition. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I was happy. And I, I enjoyed that aspect of it because that's what made it Nickelodeon. You know, Nate and I were having fun and Gabby and Lex were doing their thing. But the thing that made it Nickelodeon were all of those auxiliary elements, the, the slime in the end zone, the young Sheldon popping up, which was personally my favorite. And I thought that it was great because it, it got us into what they wanted. It got us into the, the Nickelodeon side of things pretty easily. It just led us into a rhythm. Like young Sheldon, after explaining a penalty, then making a joke that he would on the show, that then allowed us to play off of that more. So it just it helped put us again in the right position of where they wanted to go, the right direction of where this game was supposed to be going. So I loved that aspect of it. It definitely made our jobs a little bit easier. What was uh, what was one thing that didn't make air that you wished made air? <laughs> there was one where uh, this was something Nate and I had talked about. I don't think it made air, but sometimes you just somewhat black out on, on air and don't even remember exactly what happened or what was said. But there was one point or one graphic that they had made where it was Jimmy Graham standing and then comparing his height to some of the other characters from SpongeBob. So Jimmy Graham's six, seven, and then like SpongeBob's four inches. And so you stacked them all up and it was like the, the worst AT&T service bar of all time. It just, it was, it went in every direction and so I loved that one. I thought, because I, again, it's, you're, you're showing kids and you're giving kids a reference point of how big these dudes are, like how incredibly large these men are that are going out on the field and playing. And I think some young kids, they, they don't quite understand that because they can't see it in person yet. And so to give them the reference point, I thought was really good. So that was one. They also made graphics for all of us in Nick-style theme, where now we're like, as you called it, Nickified. I thought those were funny. Uh, they ended up just doing that in general, rolling a break towards the end of the game. But yeah, th this stuff like that, they just had so many creative ideas, but there was obviously only so much time. So you can't get everything in. How did you get the assignment? I, I was really lucky. And I'm very fortunate that CBS reached out to me. Uh, this was right around the NBA playoffs in the bubble. So they were gearing up for this. They'd put a lot of thought into it. And Sean Robbins and Ross Malloy had the idea that 
I would be good for this game. They were working with Viacom and with Nickelodeon directly, and they basically said, you know, we, we think we have someone that would work. And so they said, okay, reach out to them, see if they're interested, and then we'd like to talk to them. And so they reached out to me, asked if I was interested. It took me a grand total of half a second to decide if I was interested or not. I mean, this this thing is, is catered towards exactly what I like. I, I love sports, but I love entertainment as well. And I always wanted to blend the two and find a way to to walk the line between the two fields, basically. And this is cater-made for that. And so when I asked, I said, absolutely, I'd love to talk to the people at Nickelodeon. And so that's what we ended up doing for a pseudo-interview of sorts over Zoom. And once they gave me the green light, I was good to go. But it was, I think, what ended up helping me. And it's it, when they talked to me, when I was talking to the people from Nickelodeon, they said, well, did you watch the channel growing up? It's not a requirement, but did you watch it? And I said, I, I'm not lying when I tell you my eyes were glued to it for hours when I was a kid. Like I could, I could recite lines from dozens of shows. And so I told some stories, et cetera. And that's why I really was excited for this. I, I truly was a huge fan of the channel and it was a dream come true. Like as a kid, I thought, always used to think to myself, oh, I wish I could just at some point be on Nickelodeon. And I'll be honest, I always used to say, I wish I could get slimed. And so that's, that's still yet to be fulfilled, but I'm hoping one day it does happen. And I'm fully uh, in doctrine. I'm fully into the Nickelodeon family. Hmm. And so, right, so that was clearly then in, that was an audition interview, correct? That wasn't just a, let's get to know you interview. Yeah, for the most, I think it was a combination of the two, honestly. It was, it was pretty informal, but they did have to give me the okay. They did have to uh, really feel comfortable with me doing the game. So it was, it was a combination of two, yeah. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is a question you've been, uh, or a subject you've talked about or been asked before. It's probably going to be something that you're asked about, I would say, for the next uh, 10 plus years or so. Uh, your dad is Ian Eagle. I think as most people who are uh, listening to this podcast know, he's been a guest on this podcast many times. Uh, having talked to Joe Buck many, many times over the years uh, about this, um, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a challenge of sorts to overcome at least some in the sports public's belief that you were gifted these jobs at a young age because of your dad. Um, you know, Joe now is 51, I believe. He sort of looks at all this differently, thinks about it as somebody who's now been in the business a long time and has the perspective and um, and probably just has the self-belief that he sort of earned it. And, and the questions about Joe Buck um, sort of are irrelevant. It's different for you because your dad is still on air. Um, you're very young and you've gotten some jobs uh, that – you know, for some broadcasters, they never get. So let me, let's start here, Noah. And that is how, at least so far, have you navigated this? The notion that there are always going to be some who believe that you were given these jobs because of, um, because of who your father is. 
Yeah, I still thought his name was Ian, so I think we have to start there. <laughs> I, who is this? I'm sorry. No. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think that the Joe stuff is, is perfect. You know, you're right. Joe, at this point, if anybody is trying to question his credentials, his chops, whether he deserves to be anywhere, I mean, then they're not, they're not paying attention. Uh, Joe Buck is one of the best in the business, plain and simple. And I think that's the goal, is you want to get to a point where it's universally believed, like, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I see it. But I'm not naive. I know that at this point in my career, the name has helped. Like, I don't, I don't shy away from that. And, and the way I describe it to most people is, I get it. I get if, it, if it's going to crack open a door for me, then um, what am I supposed to do, walk away from that door? No. Uh, my mentality is, okay, if a door's cracked open, it's still my job to go ahead and kick it down. And so I, I've always thought, okay, I can, I can maybe get a, a small opportunity or a big opportunity as a result, but it's still my job to go out there and perform when that opportunity is given. And the hope is, after uh, enough time and enough of those chances where you've proven, okay, yeah, maybe maybe he was the right person for the job, or maybe he is uh, talented in this sense, or maybe he can do this. The hope is that people eventually uh, realize that, just like what's happened with Joe. Uh, you're right. My father is still on the air, and that is a different wrinkle at the time. But the reason I think Joe would say the same thing, I believe I have heard him say this, the same thing. The reason I got into it, or one of the main reasons at least, is that I saw my dad doing it every day and the joy that it brought him every day. And when you've got a close relationship with your father and you want to be like him when you're older, it's an easy choice when every morning he's excited to go to work or to get to work or whatever it might be. And so uh, that aspect of the job, it, it was hypnotizing. And I, I followed through with that feeling in my gut and just didn't really worry about what was going to be said or how I was going to be perceived. If it was going to give me joy and I was going to be excited about it, that's what mattered most to me. And so far that's been the case, but yeah, I, I don't, I focus more on how can I go out there and just be the best version of me than anything else. But I, I'm not naive. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that I understand what comes with the last name. That's, that's absolutely part of it. How, uh, how often did you tag along with your father uh, when he'd be on broadcast assignments when you were younger? Yeah, I, I, I tried to as much as I could. I would say early in my life, especially, I was always sitting in his office while he was, while he was doing his notes. I mean, he, he would take hours, and anybody who's broadcast a game knows how long it takes to prepare for just one. And so for someone like him who does maybe four or five, even six in a week, he's preparing for several at a time he's always in the office just making sure that he's on top of it. And so when I was younger, I'd sit in his office with him. I'd watch him do it. I'd see how he slowly but surely got certain points down on his boards and on his notes. And I would maybe sift through media guides because those still existed at the time. And I know I'm, I'm trying to like age myself, but I'm still a baby. I'm still baby bird. So I can't, I, I'm still feeling after this Nickelodeon thing, it was the first time that I was like the old guy of sorts because we had a 15 and a, another teenager. And so even Gabby before the broadcast was calling me and Nate, Mr. Noah and Mr. Nate I was like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't call me Mr. Noah. That's I'm not, I'm not that old yet. I'm still 24. Um, but yeah, no, I would tag along as much as I possibly could 
while I still had school and other things, but he was really, really gracious about bringing me whenever, whenever he could really. And whenever my schedule allowed it. And I always look forward to it. I, I think the biggest thing that I got out of that was how he handled himself in the environment, not how he did on the air, not how he used certain information, but how was he treating all of the people around him? How was he carrying himself uh, in the environment that he was going to be working in? And that's the stuff that's just by osmosis, I think I took away and I tried to apply to my job and to my career and do a lot of the same things because uh, that was the thing that stood out more than more than his performance on the air was his performance off the air and it's not a performance it's just who he is one last one about nickelodeon and then we'll finish up with the clippers um obviously i imagine cbs and nickelodeon were really pleased with what the on air talent did did they happen to give you any indication as to whether they thought they were going to do this again uh not not concrete but uh they've alluded that i think everybody would like to do it again and uh, I think we all feel the same way. I think we were excited and we enjoyed ourselves more than anything, both behind the scenes and on the air. I think we all just enjoy doing it. And even with all the work that we put in ahead of time and, and we had a number of meetings and brainstorming sessions or any of that stuff, but even with all that time, the, the actual game itself, we just had a blast doing. And so I think from that perspective, people, yeah, they're definitely interested in doing it again. But because of all that work that, it took leading into it, it. It's I think Suzanne has said this a few times and she's right. You can't just turn this around quickly within a few days. It, it takes time to really mold it and figure out how to approach it and get all the elements together that you had mentioned earlier. And so with that in mind, I would say it can't be just turned around by the end of this playoff run. I think in the future, um, hopefully next year, there will be another opportunity like this, and hopefully people respond in a similar manner. Let's finish with the Clippers. Um, you're calling one of the best teams in the NBA, a team that you many believe has a chance to win a title, as I think people believed last year. Two of the uh, two of the biggest stars in the league, in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. What's it like calling a team that's not just a local team, but but a national team, given who's on that who's on that team? Yeah, it's. It's great. I mean, just, just being around this, this group is awesome. And the people associated with this franchise are tremendous. And that, that starts with Steve Ballmer. Uh, he sets the tone for, for everything around the Clippers organization. And the tone that he has set has been first class since he entered the ownership ranks in the NBA. And I've, I mean, look, this is only my second year with them, but you can tell the foundation that he has set is building towards a sustainable, successful future for this franchise. And so to be around that and be around that positivity and to be around that excitement for what's to come is exciting and, and it's enticing. It's intoxicating. And so that alone is great. But yeah, the team itself, I mean, it was funny because I, I got the job and I'd known about it, but it wasn't public yet last summer, summer of 2019. I know time flies at this point. So summer of 2019, and I had known about it right before they acquired Kawhi and Paul George. And so I, I, only a small number of people had known at this time, but some people at the NBA had gotten word, and I happened to be at Summer League when that happened. And so I, I, walking up the next morning, 
They said, how lucky are you? I said, what do you mean? They go, your first year in the NBA, you have the title contending favorite as your team. And I said, what? They go, well, you've got, you've got literally the team that's going to be the favorite to win the title. I said, okay, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, I, I'd say I'm very lucky then. And I was right, because as a new broadcaster, the biggest thing to help with fan approval is winning. And the team won a lot uh, up until the, the second round. They were, they were really good and winning 49 of their 72 games. So that feeling alone, like people were less inclined to hate me. And that was a goal. It's just, okay, how can I try to win over as many of the fans as possible, being the new guy from the Northeast, like never really settled in, in California? How can I integrate myself in that? And I felt like we did a good job as a collective group of doing that last year as a full broadcast team because there were a lot of changes across the board. And because of the fact that they were successful for the most part, that helped us and people were into it. And so I think that's, that's great. But yeah, the national brand side of things, I think you have to just always be aware of what's happening around the NBA and surrounding your team. What's the discussion right now surrounding your team? Because the fans of that team, they take it to heart. So how can you frame that stuff in the right way? That's always the, the mentality that we've taken is making sure that we're framing it the correct way for Clipper fans who to understand. And we, we get uh, more knowledge of what's going on exactly behind the scenes and that helps us. But yeah, it, it's been great. And it's been a, a real blessing to be a part of. You, um, you obviously, when you're interviewing for the job, you're probably interviewing with like uh, business operations or whatever, the Clippers department is that hires their uh, their in-house media. But at a certain point, I'd imagine that you had to walk into Steve Ballmer's office and he had to give the green light, just given how important the positions are of a radio broadcaster or a television broadcaster in terms of marketing the product. Did, did you indeed have to have that meeting with Ballmer? And, and what was that experience like walking into that guy's office and and knowing that he's ultimately the guy who either signs off or doesn't sign off on the on the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. He was he was the second line of interviews. So the first one was your exactly right business side of things, and that was I guess the the initial look into it. And I did an audition as well on that same day. So it was a combination of two factors. And then the following week, a few days after, I hear from my agent, and he says, "Hey." Steve Ballmer wants to meet with you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Because everybody knows, anyone who's an NBA fan knows Steve Ballmer especially, but really most people in general are starting to know who he is because of all the great work that he does outside of basketball. Uh, and the dude's as philanthropic as they come. He's as genuinely awesome as they come. And I came to realize that when I got there, because it was in Seattle, I was still at Syracuse at the time. So I flew from Syracuse to Seattle and I'd already taken a red eye back from L.A. the previous week because I'm pretty sure I had finals. Like, I had to get back for specific exams. And so I flew to Seattle, and I didn't know what to expect. Like, I didn't know if what I had seen on TV of this fan basically going nuts courtside was going to be the man who was interviewing me to potentially change my life forever. And so I walk in. They basically sent directions of how to use the elevator at this building. I was like, I think I know how to use an elevator, but sure enough, I was completely puzzled as I get there. I'm in the lobby. I'm like, I'm thinking like, this is not a good start. 
that I really don't know how to use their elevator. But basically what happened is they had to send it down for me. It was like an automatic machine-operated elevator that I had no control over. Like, I walked in, and I was like, is this the right idea that I, I have no control over what happens in here? I could completely just disappear, and no one would know. But sure enough, I get out. It's his office, and I sit down. He comes in, sits down, and we talked for about an hour and a half, just just one-on-one which was crazy to me. I was like, this, this, this guy really is willing to spend an hour and a half with me. And the majority of his questions were not just only to get to know me, but asking my opinion on broadcasting questions. Like he wanted to know and was genuinely interested in what I had to say, but to give you a glimpse of the type of person he is, and I'm telling you, he's exactly what you see on TV. When he asked, did I have any questions for him? I did. I had a couple but one of them was, well, what are you looking for out of your broadcaster? And I wanted to know because if I were to get the job, I needed to at least somewhat cater towards what the owner of the team was looking for. And I, he did not even think half a second before he answered. He looked me square in the eyes. And I'm not kidding. Just said, someone who's hardcore. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can. I could do hardcore. You want like a skateboarding guy? I, I could probably do that. Mohawk? I, can, I, could, I could do a mohawk, you know? But that was him. Like, that's him in a nutshell. Is That's all he's looking for. Someone who's into it. Someone who's as excited about the team as he is. And so when I left that interview, I looked him in the eye and I said, look, Mr. Bomber, I appreciate you having me in. I really, I, it really means a lot that you would give me the time to talk to me. And just want to let you know that if you do give me the job, the Clippers will be my life. And he said, okay, that's good to know. I appreciate you coming in. We went our separate ways. And um, from there, I just, I just waited out and, and hoped that it would work out. It eventually did. But I held up my promise, at least up to this point. And the Clippers were gracious enough to let me do this game this past Sunday. But it's the only day I've, I've not been there so far. And I've been all in on this team and will continue to do so for – however long I remain with the Clippers, which I'm hoping is at least for the uh, somewhat distant future because I really do love being with the franchise. Yeah, listen, it's, it is a great gig to be in Los Angeles calling a team that uh, is, uh, you know, has meaningful games every night and then to do other stuff as you did with Nickelodeon. That's, uh, you know, that's a lottery ticket existence uh, at the moment in, uh, you know, in what's an unprecedented time. For, uh, for all of us. All right, Noah Eagle is the radio voice of the Clippers. He called Nickelodeon's first ever NFL broadcast, and I would, uh, I'd probably bet some uh, good money that if they do this again, he will be on the call for their, uh, for their second broadcast. Noah, good of you to uh, take some time to uh, discuss this stuff uh, in the early morning at Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, and best of luck... Uh, Best of luck heading forward. What do you do these? What does a Los Angeles person do like today? You're going to go out surfing later, Noah? What what happened? I'm, I'm an East <laughs> no, Coast person. No, I don't understand me. what happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just shocked how quickly I became scared of gluten. Really, that's it. Is that right? Like I I don't know why, but gluten now I hear the word and I I shiver. I wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night, saying Ah, gluten! No, no, no! Keep it away. What do you got? Sur- um, you got so surfing. Yeah, you got surfing. What... Then you're heading to a dojo. And then some kale after that? Is that what happened? <laughs> right. 
Yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of meditation. I've got to get three sessions in today, and I'm going to go get a chai tea latte, maybe even matcha. I don't know. Not, nice. We'll see how I feel at about 2 p.m. <laughs> it's very. It's a little Will Ferrell-ish old school there. That's nice. It's going to be a big day at Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> All right, Noah Eagle, everyone. Yeah. Remember, his, uh, remember his name. You'll be seeing much of him in the future. Noah, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. As I said at the top, Ryan S. Clark, who is a colleague of mine at The Athletic, is a national NHL writer, covers the Seattle Kraken for The Athletic. Of course, since uh, Seattle has not started playing yet, Ryan will do uh, a lot of league-wide stuff before the Kraken really get going. And I'm pleased to be joined by Ryan S. Clark to the Sports Media Podcast. Ryan, um, thanks for being here. And by the way, congrats on uh, on working in a very cool city, Seattle. And that's and that's where I want to start. Before I get into some NHL stuff, like what is it like covering a team that, while it exists, it does not yet exist on the ice yet? It can be a little bizarre. And when you look at the way the season opened, uh, well, really not the season, but training camp, everyone's like, here's the roster, and here's the view from training camp. And it's like, here's the Kraken's roster. It's nobody and here's the training facility where it's still being built so there you go but uh you know look it's different but it comes with the idea that even though it's different there are still so many stories you can work on whether it be things like what are their tv and radio contracts going to look like um how does one go about scouting during a pandemic how important is not only the expansion draft but the entry draft where you're trying to build a team from scratch, but you're doing it in a limited capacity because of the pandemic. And, of course, there are plenty of other things to work on, but that's just really it. It's just – it's this is the reality. It's like there's no one there, there's no one playing, but there's still a lot to cover. How have you found, at least at this point, how would you rate uh, or analyze the level of interest for hockey in Seattle? It's exceptionally high just because this is a city that's gone more than a decade without – a professional sports team really occupying that winner slot. Yes, you have the Seahawks, the Mariners, the Storm, the Rain, the Sounders. I mean, they are there, but when you look at, like, right now, this point in the season, the only thing going on would be college basketball, whether that's the University of Washington, Seattle U, Washington State, Gonzaga, which those latter two programs are on the other side of the state, whether it be men or women's basketball. And so, Right now, like people are just genuinely interested, and you can see it on TV, whether it's a, a Bartell Drugs commercial where you see people advertising, hey, they have Kraken hoodies and hats and cups, or you know, for people who might be driving around, they might see someone on the street walking and they're wearing something Kraken-related. And it's one of those things people here are genuinely excited about. Like Seattle is a really driven, adamant sports city when it comes to its fandom and supporting things. And what you're seeing with the Kraken, it's it's growing to the point where when opening night happens, whenever opening night happens, it's going to be extremely high and probably at a fever pitch. 
I want to uh, I want to ask you about the NHL. Uh, it's going to be obviously a an unprecedented season. There's a Canadian division, the North Division, and then obviously there's the U.S. teams that are playing each other. We're going to have a season where uh, teams don't face other teams until theoretically the the final four of the year. What for? Uh, and and generally speaking, nobody I think at the, maybe even maybe a handful I think at this point are only playing in front of limited crowds, and obviously that's going to change based on COVID. Um, what for you right now is uh, give me one or two or three of that you find to be the most important and most interesting stories as we start the NHL year. One of them is going to be how is travel going to work with this league? When you stare at the league protocols, it's a 13-page document. It's about as inclusive as it gets to the point where when you look at the section on hotels, that's a little bit more than four pages along with several bulleted points, one of them being elevator protocol, which I have that in front of me. And so when you look at something like elevator protocol, it is these really nuanced things such as making sure you are not using your fingers to press elevator buttons. You're using your knuckles and elbows. Uh, you're not entering a crowded elevator. You're not lingering or standing in a crowded elevator bank. And also, you're not talking to anyone while you're in the elevator. And so we think so much about how travel typically works where, yes, there's rules and there's guidelines, but nothing this restrictive, whereas if now everything is so rigid and constructed to make sure that there, there's the minimal risk that people can catch this, uh, can catch COVID in this pandemic to where it's, it's a life change for people. So that, that's something to consider. The second one we've all talked about has probably been the scheduling, where you're going to start seeing teams play each other at a more frequent pace. And is this one of those things that leads to maybe more rivalries coming about? Just because one of the things we all heard during the bubble is, you know, you go into the elevator and you might see someone from another team, maybe even a former teammate, where the first time you see them, it's like, oh, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? Good to see you. But when you're playing this person every day and you see them in the hotel, after a while you get tired of seeing them, and that's kind of what you know carries over onto the ice. So that could be it. The, the third, truthfully, is just going to be seeing who can do what in a 56-game season. And we saw it with baseball in the shortened season where we saw teams like the Marlins make the postseason, and you kind of wonder what would that have looked like over a full 162-game schedule. And that's going to be one of the intriguing parts about this truncated regular season is, yes, it's the old cliche of, like, losses mean more because there's so few games, wins mean more because the same reason, but also, like, what's this going to do for certain teams? So if you look at a team like the Montreal Canadiens, where, like, they have a lot of young talent, someone like Noah Suzuki – comes to mind, yes, even with the 5-4 loss last night to the Toronto Maple Leafs, that is a team people are looking at and thinking with that young core and those veterans, maybe this is the year where they can do something. Or if you're looking at the you know what's going on in, in, in the West with teams like Vegas, St. Louis, Colorado, how are those games going to be more impactful? And is it possible like those three teams beat up on each other so much, it allows someone that people might have overlooked to possibly get into the mix and position themselves into making the postseason. So those would probably be three examples. Ryan, when you're covering the NHL this year and your position nationally, uh, how do you do, how does one do the job? Uh, is it because you're, because uh, I, I presume that you're not traveling across the country. Uh, are you, is it just total phone call uh, based reporting uh, can you pop on to Zoom conferences before or after 
games. Um, what's if you can? What's the reporting process like for you this year? Sure, it's all of the above. I mean, with phone calls, it's understanding that you know, look, people are are going to be moving around and busy, and it's different. So everybody's having to be mindful of that. And so you just try to find times where it works for teams and and players or general managers if you can get them on the phone and and say, hey, does this time work? I'm working on this. And everybody's pretty agreeable to that. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Just call it this time or whatever. And same thing with Zooms because, I mean, teams certainly understand that with travel being what it is, not everyone's going to have access to it. And also there have been conversations about how do you make this work to where everybody feels like they have a, a say or a sense in that they can cover teams, whether you're there every day or you're someone like myself nationally or someone who you're working on something in one market, but you want to ask someone in a different market or a different team the same question just to get perspective. So it's just been that. Really the only challenge has been uh, just the time zones because living in Seattle, like you'll see a team have, you know, at 10 or 11 a.m. Zoom and then you're just doing the math. And it's like, okay, you might have to wake up a little bit earlier, but at the same time, like it, either way, you're covering the NHL and it's not like you're doing something like breaking rocks or something that's actually a lot harder. It's a job that a lot of people want to do. So really there's nothing to complain about. From, um, so let me sort of ask it this way. How you've covered other sports. How, how do you, how do you define the ex- the access or accessibility of people in hockey versus the other sports you've covered? Sure. I mean, let's start pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, it's a different galaxy altogether. I mean, college football is something that you know can be really restrictive if you are covering a local beat. So the two years I covered Florida State, it was something where we were able to get Jimbo Fisher probably – Four times a week, I want to say, about four times, maybe five. Um, and then with players, it's something that, you know, you can get players, but to get one-on-ones, I mean, it might happen once every two or, or three weeks. Whereas if you look at the University of Washington, uh, Chris Peterson spoke about four or five times a week. And then players were brought in on different days. So, for example, believe like Monday, no, excuse me, so Tuesday was like offensive day, Wednesday was defensive day, Thursday was coordinators, or some mix like that. But it was one of those things where you got them. And, again, it works differently because at FSU, we never got coordinators unless it was media day or bowl game. At Washington, we got them once a week. Whereas if you go to the NHL, you can really get whoever you want. Now, of course, every team does things differently. Some teams make assistance available. Other teams don't. Um, a lot of teams do not make other personnel like team services or medical people available. But when I wrote a story about the Avalanche's fantasy football league, it was their head athletic trainer who had started this. And they let me talk to him for this story about kind of how it all works. Now, if I want to get him for medical information, clearly that's not happening, but really post COVID, well not post, but in this current COVID environment, Richard, it's a lot like covering college football where the access is something where it's universal to everyone. You're not getting one-on-ones. You can't wait for the, the, the mob to go away to, to the next player before you get in your question or, or, or whatever. You can't work a room. But that's really just how you treat it is if you've come from a background like college football where the access is a lot more universal and you have to be creative about writing the same story but maybe presenting it differently than someone else, then that experience is going to benefit you. So I would say that's probably been really the two big differences between what you see in something like college athletics versus something like the NHL, where when you look around at access, 
it's just it's a completely different universe. What again? No one really knows this answer in any of the sports that uh, that people are covering now. But if you had to take a guess in the post-COVID universe, do you anticipate the NHL will return to what it used to be, or do you think the NHL um, in a post-COVID universe limits limits access, or at least limits the access that NHL writers had prior to COVID? Maybe it's a mix of both. I mean, there's probably going to be a period, a grace period, when they slowly start to integrate reporters being in dressing rooms. Just because, again, when you look at the protocols now, I mean, for example, if you are on the team plane and the person sitting next to you is eating, it's strongly recommended you don't eat until that person eats. So if they're being this way with something like a team flight, you can imagine that over time, it's going to lead to the conversations about dressing rooms and access. So that said, the feeling is it, it could get back to the way it was because the reality is this, like with something like COVID, everybody understands changes are going to be made. But once it reaches a point where let's say the vaccine is universally disseminated to the point where you're seeing more and more people get access to it, the comfort level eases in different facets of life in the sense of like restaurants, supermarkets, uh, more people being in public spaces like arenas, so on and so forth, then yes, there's going to be that discussion. And then from there, it's probably going to be one of just, okay, let's try to get back to the way it was. Because the thing is this, the NHL has set a standard for what access is. And I know with your podcast and someone who's listened to it for a while, like these sort of inside baseball things as reporters are things that we talk about frequently. And when you look at the NHL's access compared to what you see whether it's the NFL from people you talk to, um, Major League Baseball, the NBA, college athletics, you name it, uh, the WNBA, the NWSL, like the NHL ranks pretty high in the sense of what it can do. And so if you're the NHL, is that something you really want to go back on? Because let's be honest, when you think about the economics and the popularity of it, it benefits the NHL to make its players accessible to media. Because when you look at it in a grand scheme of things, and you're the expert, so I'd love to hear your insight on this, the NHL, while it's a popular professional league, it does get beat out by the NFL, NBA, college football, college basketball, Major League Baseball, uh, Premier League Soccer. And so you're battling realistically for sixth or seventh place, depending on who you ask. And so if you're this league, you want to get as much attention as you can. And if you start restricting locker room access at a time when things are returning to normalcy, it might not aid your cause. Yeah, no, I think the NHL would be insane, quite frankly, to reduce access. I think any sport that um, that's competing against sports that naturally have more audience than them, particularly more television audience than them, yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think they have to open it up. And I think the NHL is pretty. Um, I think I think they're aware of that, and smart enough um, on a league wide level. Though you know, the real question, of course, is how the teams on an individual level feel that way. But I, I. Uh, I mean, never say never, but that, man, that would be a very backwards way of thinking if they used COVID to to reduce access long-term. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I want to... Um... I want to uh, I want to finish up on this topic, and we'll go a little bit on this, and that's um, and that's people who are covering the game, and um, and how you view Ryan the diversity of those covering the game. For a long time, obviously, hockey has been a very very uh, white sport in terms of who has covered the sport, particularly white males, um, of which you are not. Uh, <laughs> and so, from your perspective, big is true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is true. Uh, from your perspective, from your perspective, um, how would you eva- We'll just sort of start very broad here. How would you evaluate the the diversity among those covering the game, both from uh, people of color to gender? Let's start with gender. You're seeing women in press boxes, but it's still not enough. You're seeing people of color in press boxes, but it's still not enough. As for what the arbitrary number for what enough is, that's the thing people are trying to figure out at this point. So take the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Um, It's a group that we have started a diversity and inclusion committee to find ways to not only get more women and more people of color in this group, but we also want to find ways to help develop the next generation. And as someone who covered junior hockey in Fargo, North Dakota, while also covering high school hockey in Moorhead, Minnesota, you're not seeing people who look like you in those spaces. And while you're excited about this, you might have that experience wondering, why am I doing this when it feels like you're always being othered in a sense? And so if a group like the THWA had a program like that when I was in Fargo, who's to say what it would have done for my development, my confidence, just everything in general? And that's a very realistic conversation that we are having with our committee right now. As far as just what we're seeing in the game and in the sense of have the numbers improved, it's, it's noticeable. I mean, you do see black writers in this league. There's Tark El Bashir and Eric Stevens who work with us at The Athletic. There's Colin Stevenson at Newsday. Uh, you are seeing more Hispanics and Latinos in, in the NHL as well. There's Jose Romero who covers – uh, the Arizona Coyotes. There's uh, someone that the Tampa Bay Times hired who his name escapes me at the moment. But when you look at it, I mean, that's still four black men covering the league in terms of writers, and it's still three Hispanic men in the league, including writers, because I'm also Hispanic as well. But then you start asking these questions of when you look at how it works in Canada, you're seeing more diversity on TV. You're seeing someone like Salim Baji, who's covering the Calgary Flames for TSN. There's Jermaine Franklin, who was previously in that position for TSN. I mean, David Amber is a staple. David Amber will never say that out loud. But for a generation of people like myself, we all grew up watching David Amber, which I'm sure if David Amber were to hear, we all grew up watching him. He is going to feel ridiculously old. He is not, but the point is he is someone we've watched. But then when you look at the significance of last night, when Harner Ryan Singh who does Hockey Night Punjabi Edition is doing the Oilers game. It is a massive moment because it wasn't that long ago we weren't seeing faces like his 
in mainstream audiences, or let alone even with something like Hockey Night Punjabi Edition, and now we're seeing it. And so while you're seeing this progress, while you're seeing women like Emily Kaplan at ESPN become one of the biggest stars in this sport, you're seeing a rising star like Haley Salvian or Sarah Sivian, um, even women like Lisa Dillman and Helene Elliott and Helene St. James, who are some of the staples of this industry, it's still bittersweet because it shouldn't be the same names over and over again. There needs to be more. There needs to be different people. There needs to be more people, let's say, someone like a Samantha Powell at the Washington Post, who is an extremely, extremely gifted journalist. And, and that's just the thing is, how do you get to that point? In some cases, it's people have to want to cover something. And when you look at what journalists want to cover, of course, the NBA and the NFL or college football or basketball are going to be the popular answers. I mean, they're everywhere. Why wouldn't you? And I mean, just look at the NBA alone, just with the Brooklyn Nets, who would not want to cover that right now? So it's just, how do you get more people interested? But more importantly, how do you get more people to feel like there's a place for them? Because look, to be truthful with you, when I went to cover Florida State, I gave up on the NHL. And when I went to Washington, people asked me, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you covered whatever the Seattle team's going to be called? And it's like, no, because that's never going to happen. Because I feel like people who look like me don't have a shot covering the NHL. I mean, now I look at it and I go, I think there's more of an opportunity, but the numbers could still be a lot better. Um, as a white male, I'm never going to walk into or I haven't walked into an NHL press box and ever not seen a ton of people who look like me, both in the press box and, quite frankly, on the ice. So the reality is these are – I've never felt like the other. Let's just be blunt here and and, and truthful with the audience. Um, that's different for you. And so I wonder um, how would you evaluate – it's a sort of a tough question because it's a big question, but how do you how, – how have you felt sort of institutionally – about when you are covering the sport? Like, do you feel like institutionally that um, you've been accepted by all around the sport or do you still, because these numbers are so low, do, do you feel like the other or do you feel like an outsider? I hope, I hope you're sort of understanding where my question is going. Totally, totally. In the beginning, it definitely felt like the outsider, but you don't know how much of that is. You're new, you're covering a team in the avalanche that's starting to come back into national relevance versus how much of that is race, whereas if now, it's definitely one of those things where more people know me, um, and sometimes that blows my mind, but it's still just looking around at certain things and going, how does it get better? And so like when we look at the fact that I'm now a national writer, which still seems wild to say out loud, I'm the first black or Hispanic national writer to my knowledge in NHL league history. That just, that like, it is something that like, it leaves me speechless some days because I think about my dad. And so my dad is in his eighties. He grew up in Jim Crow, Alabama. And he said to me, he never ever thought people who look like us could do what I'm doing now. And we love to have these conversations about Jim Crow as if it was some era of yesteryear, like it was medieval times. No, it was yesterday. You can still walk in plenty of courthouses throughout the American South, and you look above a water fountain, and you're going to see part of that wall 
is a little bit of a different shade than the rest of it. It's because that's where whites and colors only placards used to be. We're not that far removed from it. And so when you look at this league and what it's trying to do, it's, it's a strange thing because, yes, it's not the NBA and it's not the NFL. But at the same time, I still see more diversity and inclusion covering the NHL than I did covering college football. And that's just an honest reality. And as for how do you get it to be better, how do you fix it, yes, there has to be interest for people who want to do it, but also it falls on hiring managers. It falls on people who are making the decisions, those with power, to sit there and look around and say, this is why this matters. So let's take someone like Emily Kaplan. What makes her so good at what she does, and it's the same thing that makes someone like, again, uh, Samantha Pell really good. It's the same thing that makes uh, Sarah Sivian, Haley Salvian, this younger generation of, of writers good is they've worked in other sports. So they're able to know what access looks like. And if they've had to get creative with less access in previous beats, what do you think they're going to do when they get more access in a league like this where like they are begging players to talk? And not only that, but you hear people say, well, Today's player is so hard to reach out to. They have Twitter and Instagram accounts. Like, you can't make it any more easier. Like, they put their personal lives out there. It may not be the image or the idea that you think it should be, but it's out there. There's all sorts of context clues. And, like, when you can get people who come from different environments to do stories, it's going to make what you do better. And I think an example that I can think of in just my time covering this league was – the Avalanche my first year had a team where 50% of the players were born in places where English isn't the first language. So as someone who also speaks Spanish and Russian, I know what that's like to be in places where you are speaking a different language and how that changes. So it's talking with Russian players like Simeon Varlamov and Nikita Zadorov about, hey, what's it like to go from, phonetic, from Cyrillics to phonetics? Where in Russian you have things like Cured V-snot and Miyaki-snot, which literally mean hard sound, soft sound, whereas if in the United States, with the 26-letter phonetic alphabet, there is nothing like that. And, and how do you change your line of thinking to where, like, again, when you look at Russian, you might see something that says Makba. What does that look like? That's what Moscow looks like in Russia. And, like, the way you see the letter C in Russian is different than it is in English. So that being said, it's like, it's a story that just because you've had someone who had a different experience, you're able to tell something about someone that makes people go, damn, I didn't know that. Do you, um, I don't know how often uh, you float into college hockey and the junior ranks, but, uh, and this is sort of, this is, this is more anecdotal and a guess, but I would think that if the NHL numbers, Ryan, are pretty low when it comes to, uh, when it comes to media diversity, I would imagine they're even lower uh, in terms of those sports where it might just be one person on a beat or occasionally a person on the beat. Maybe the gender numbers are better, but like as far as you are aware, are, are there people of color covering uh, minor hockey, junior hockey, uh, college hockey? To my knowledge on, like, AHL, ECHL, do not believe so, but there could be. Have not seen any in college hockey. 
In junior hockey, that's a more difficult one because, I mean, you know better than anyone in Canada, if you're the paper in Kamloops, you're going to go cover the Blazers. But if you are a USHL franchise in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, there's no guarantee you're going to have a reporter covering you. Exactly. So, like, it's it's hard to definitively say one way or the other. Yeah, it's a good... uh... That's a good take. Uh, I guess my last one would be, I mean, you, you know, you're, I have no idea how, how old you are, Ryan, but I, it might, my, my sense is you're in your 30s, early 30s. Or oh, 36, yeah. Okay, all right, so there you go. What a guess. Um, so, you know, you you represented an important generation because, you know, your working life, theoretically, should be for the next 30 years or so. I, I don't know if you'll always cover the NHL, but um, sort of for the purposes of the question, um, I feel like your generation is going to play an important role because, like, when you mentioned sort of how important David Amber is, I feel like there's going to be, uh, you know, kids right now who are 18, 19 years old, kids of color who want to cover hockey and, or women of, or women who want to cover hockey. And they're going to, if not, I mean, I realize the numbers aren't great, but at least they're going to see people who they can touch and believe that this is possible. I, I remember, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times on this podcast I've talked to somebody where they said like, uh, you know, like the importance of Pam Oliver. Like I saw Pam Oliver on television and like I, as a black woman, I believe like I could be covering sports on TV. Like if that person doesn't exist, even as shitty as the, the number might be, like you can't sort of dream it or believe it at least. And again, I'm not Pollyanning this year. The numbers suck. But my hope would be, and I hope you hope this too, that your generation ultimately leads to larger numbers of the generation after you guys. I think think we're starting to see that in some aspects already because there is a young man in Denver I mentored, Eric Dean, um, who he is Iranian-Canadian, and this is what he wants to do for the rest of his life. And he is this extremely driven, just passionate, like just wants to learn and know everything. And for him, for someone who loves this game, like he's been othered in the sense of, are you sure you're in the right place? Are you sure you fit in? And like something he said to me was just like, he was like, yeah, when you took the job, I remember sitting around with my brother and my friends and it's like, I see this guy and if he can do it, like, why can't I? And like, that's kind of the thing about what you're seeing right now is just, you hope that because of this, you start seeing more women get into these spaces, more people of color get into these spaces. But the challenge is this. It's not just so much getting into these spaces, but getting into these spaces where they can get full-time work in the time and the space to do the work that's needed. Not, oh, we bring you in as a freelancer or you're working for a site that doesn't pay. No, that's, that's not it at all. Like you have to be able to willing to make the investment and give people opportunities and give them chances to succeed, give them chances to fail. That's really the, the only way it's going to work. But when it comes to just the future, you're optimistic just because you are seeing more fans of color at games, more women at games. When I was in Denver, truthfully, and I'll probably get a lot of flack for this, the smartest and best fans the Avalanche had were all women. I mean, whether it was fans like Adrian or Taylor or Jacqueline or Morgan, like they had the best questions. They had the deepest questions. They had the most insightful questions. Like they could school anybody on that team because of how much they cared. And you want to see more of that grow and materialize over time. And it can 
but you know better than anyone. Just because it looks this way on a Thursday doesn't mean next Thursday it's going to be better or worse. It could be something completely different, and that's just the thing is until then, it's a guessing game. Ryan Clark covers – Ryan, you're, I should say Ryan S. Clark because that is your byline, correct? It's not you, – your, you put the S in the byline, or am I crazy to remember that? Yes? Yes. Okay. No, 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 no. You're, you're correct, yes. Used to get, I used to get on my old colleague, Scott Price, because he was SL Price. And when I really wanted to, you know, just go after him, I would say SL instead of Scott. Really, just a just jab. <laughs> uh, Ryan S. Clark covers uh, uh, the NHL for The Athletic. Um, he will be the Seattle Kraken writer. Uh, I mean, he is the Seattle Kraken writer. I should be specific here. But obviously, there'll be a ton of Seattle Kraken stories when they're actually – uh, playing on the ice, and um, I believe that will actually be very quickly, uh, maybe if not the the best, the the franchise that sort of has the craziest fan base. Because I, I am with Ryan, I think um, it's it could not be a more perfect fit, Seattle and uh, Seattle and hockey. So it's going to be an awesome uh, an awesome beat to cover. You can check out his work on the Athletic, and obviously follow him on Twitter if you are on that. Uh, site and as I talk my way so I can make sure I give the exact uh, uh, his handle here because he's, he's one of those people who has those underscores Ryan underscore s underscore Clark R Y A N underscore s underscore C L A R K if you follow him on Twitter Ryan very good of you to come on man and to uh, and to give me some time on the uh, sports media podcast uh, I'm a great admirer of your work I think you're doing some awesome stuff at the athletic and uh I'm proud to be a colleague of yours. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. It it means a lot. So just thank you so much. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Noah Eagle and Ryan S. Clark for their time and their insights. If you like this kind of uh, conversation, please head to the Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated. (laughs) Please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, Leave us a five-star review and a note. That's how this podcast sticks around. Previous podcast before that are James Andrew Miller. Uh, We discussed ESPN's future in 2021. Before that, Renee Paquette, who uh, was Renee Young for many, many years in the WWE, talking about uh, her journey in broadcasting there. Uh, Prior to that, Jimmy Traina, Jane McManus, Shalise Manza-Young, uh, Trey Wingo did a uh, long form with us after he left ESPN. Ryan Rucco, my colleagues Lindsay Adler and Olivia with the right. There's going to be basically something, depending on your sport and interest, I think you'll find in those archives if, uh, if you head there. Uh, as always, thanks everybody, Kate and their team, from Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott. Thanks, of course, to Patrick and Sean. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.